You know, throughout Lent, our gospel readings are so rich and they get longer and longer as we go. You may have noticed that I've avoided preaching on the gospel during Lent this year, not because I don't want to, but because I wanted to let these gospel readings speak for themselves. I also wanted an opportunity to delve more deeply into our Old Testament readings for Lent for once. Well, four weeks ago, we began Lent with the story of the Garden of Eden, which is a prehistorical, mythical, non-journalistic account of human nature and of our relationship with God. Why are we the way we are? Tell me a story to help me understand. Why do we exist? Why are we aware? And why so much of the time do we feel confused, lost, disconnected from our source? Why do we wander in the dark instead of seeing clearly? Why do we die? And what hope is there for meaning in our little lives from within the one and only perspective that each of us will ever have. The purpose of the Eden story and of all the stories that follow is honest assessment of the thrills and tragedies of humanity paired with a hopeful promise that our source is not victimizing us, has not forgotten us, and loves and cherishes us. That we do not die alone and in vain, and that all of this is going somewhere beautiful. The story moves very gradually from myth into history, yet never loses its mythical, epic, song-like quality. We heard God's call to one man and his descendants to carry the story forward. There was divine liberation from slavery, and there was water in the desert. We heard of the rise of an earthly kingdom and its monarchy, and so we continue the story today. Two generations after King David, the kingdom splits in two. For many centuries thereafter, there's no other king like David. Nobody to unify the Israelites under God's banner. Most of David's descendants are terrible leaders. And even the ones who are remembered fondly can't prevent the two Jewish kingdoms from falling apart. The northern kingdom of Israel is taken by the Assyrians, who intermarry with the locals and eventually become the Samaritans. The southern kingdom of Judah lasts 150 years longer, but then is taken into exile by the even more powerful nation of Babylon. And so, a people called to reveal God's nature to the world finds itself adrift and scattered looking back on the short-lived golden age of David and wondering what went wrong. Surely this is the end of us, the people cry. We are all as good as dead. Is there no hope awaiting us on the other side of this slow-rolling disaster? Into the middle of the mess steps the prophet Ezekiel. As a priest in the Jerusalem temple, he is central to the rituals that honor the mysteries of God's holiness. When the temple is destroyed, Ezekiel goes into exile with so many other Jews. Yet he and his school of followers carefully preserve writings intended to guide the Jewish people through the crisis and to give them hope. Hope that even now, God has a larger purpose in mind. After all, 
God is the source, the originator of all life and all existence. Look around you, Ezekiel, at this valley full of bones. Can these dry bones live? Ezekiel is wise enough to say, this is not my question to answer. So God gives Ezekiel a job. Prophesy to these bones. Give them my answer. Think about that for a minute. Go, Ezekiel, to the deadest places you can find and give them a vision. Death, your time is limited. Life is returning to this place. If there's going to be life, these bones need flesh. There is no other way to be alive. Decomposition will work backward until there are thousands of warm bodies lying in the valley. But there's one more missing element, breath. Prophesy to the breath. Human beings are flesh and spirit. We need both or we cannot live. Call on the wind. Bring inhalation and exhalation back to these thousands of bodies. In Hebrew, the words wind and breath and spirit are all the same word. A word that sounds like breathing itself. Ruach. No matter how dead things have become, there is still the possibility of new life. And not just a possibility, but a promise from God. Nothing good dies forever. God will put a new heart into the chosen people and they will get back to their mission of sharing God's character with the entire world. Do you believe this? I believe it's true whether I believe it or not. I'm not always able to believe it. I consistently fool myself into thinking it's false. And that's, that's when my talk turns defeatist and catastrophic. It seems self-evident that dead people and dead things do not rise again. But open your eyes wider. Look around you. It's springtime. Seeds are going into the earth, into the darkness, to crack open and change into something that looks completely different and that is far more alive. The dead creatures that decomposed into the earth are feeding the seeds. The warmth of the sun is coaxing new life out of death. It's so basic, so universal, and so true that we might miss it. All life leads to death and all death leads to life. We don't even have to leave this life to see the pattern. Every spring, God's promise is fulfilled. Oh, but that's not enough, you say. It's wonderful to witness the cycle of nature, but bursting seeds don't suffer. What about human affairs? We are surrounded by wars and rumors of wars, violent outbursts and rampages, hopelessness leading to desperation, the disenfranchised and the disinherited still crying out, how long? Isolation and loneliness lead to mental health crises. Climate change leads to scarcity. Misinformation leads to seething resentment. Fear leads to hate, to prejudice, to fascism to the victimization of those who merely want to remain alive. And what of our own more personal deaths? Maybe you had a vision of a happy future, 
and it didn't turn out like that at all. Things were going so well, and then everything crumbled. A lost job, a lost marriage, lost health. We feel the entropy of everything. It's not like it was, and it never will be again. Where has our hope gone? Sometimes our world feels like nothing more than a valley of dry bones, or at least it feels like it's headed in that direction. Things are not guaranteed to get better before they get worse. And then there are the losses of people we have loved. Those who have died and disappeared from our lives forever. What of them? We know they're not coming back. And all of us, at some point or another, resent the undeniable fact that life and death work this way. But wait. What do these promises from God tell us? Listen to them. What if death is merely a temporary side effect? What if we are being invited beyond our limited perspective to imagine something larger? Hello, Jesus. Hello, resurrection, present and walking among us. Welcome, you who can show up at the tomb and chase death away. We heard it first in the Garden of Eden story. When Eve and Adam decide to chart their own path apart from God, death is the consequence. Death is not a threat. It's not a finger wagging at you to be better than you are. It's not a punishment. It's just what we should expect. The Creator carved out a space in the beginning where we could live freely and joyfully. The source of life holds back the chaos and nothingness of death so that there can be possibilities. When we wander away from our source, death is the only option. But our Creator won't settle for this state of affairs. Instead, choosing to come among us and change the rules of the game. Death is not the end, but the prerequisite to true life. And I don't just mean heaven when we die, though of course I mean that too. I mean that death and resurrection weave their way through every aspect of our lives every day. No resurrection can happen without death. But there is no such thing as death without resurrection. The English poet William Blake said, we are put on this earth a little space that we might learn to bear the beams of love. This is the beginning of the story, the part where we learn to what degree we actually can chart our own path, enjoy our God-given agency and creativity, but also run up against its limitations. If this were all there is, it would be only a tragedy. Hopeful beginnings and then sad endings and then nothingness. That's why we need promises from outside the system. God comes near, shows up among us to reassure us. Jesus is the nexus of resurrection power. So wherever he goes, the dead cannot stay dead. The dry bones are resuscitated. Lazarus is resuscitated. They will all die again because the universe still works that way. We are all subject to death. But God has shown up in person 
to give us a little taste of what is coming, a resuscitation here and there, a rekindling of joy, a recovery to full health, the restoration of a relationship we were sure was dead, a new light shining into a world we were certain would always be dark. Hope happens. New life happens, not just to seeds in the ground, but in seemingly random places all over creation. We don't get the whole thing yet. We get promises, a bunch of little promises. They do add up. And sometimes they don't seem like nearly enough. But that's why we need each other. We bring all our promises together and share them. This is what it means to live a saved life. A life in which we can share joy together even in the valley of the shadow of death. We all get to participate in God's action in the world. The slow rolling rescue that is so crucial our very creator has walked among us to effect it. What beams of love have shone into your life, even into the darkest recesses of your suffering? And what are the places you might go next, bearing with you the beams of love? Keep walking with us. Let's walk together as we walk with Jesus into the heart of God's story.